Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're going to look at Parshat Tzav, Leviticus chapter 7, verse 11. Somebody read. This is the ritual of the sacrifice of well-being that one may offer to Adonai. One who offers it for thanksgiving shall offer, together with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, unleavened cakes with oil mixed in, unleavened wafers spread with oil, and peanut butter. flour <laughs> <laughs> with oil mixed in, well soaked. <laughs> this offering with cakes of leavened bread added shall be offered along with one's thanksgiving sacrifice of well-being. Out of this portion shall offer one of each kind as gift to Adonai, and it shall go to the priest who dashes the blood of the offering of well-being. And the flesh of the thanksgiving sacrifice of, of, sacrifice of well-being shall be eaten on the day that it is offered. None of it shall be set aside until morning. If, however, the sacrifice offered is a votive or free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that one offers the sacrifice. And what is left of it shall be eaten on the morrow. What is then left of the flesh of the sacrifice shall be consumed in fire on the third day. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of well-being is eaten on the third day, it shall not be acceptable. It shall not count, shall not count for the one who offered it. It is an offensive thing, and the person who eats of it shall bear the guilt. And that's why we're so healthy. <laughs> right. And that's yeah, right. The flesh that touches anything impure shall not be eaten. It shall not be consumed in fire. It shall be shall consumed. Be. I'm sorry, it shall be consumed in fire. As for other flesh, only one who is pure may eat such flesh. But the person who, in a state of impurity, eats flesh from modernized sacrifice of well-being, that person shall be cut off from kin. When a person touches anything impure, be it human impurity or an impure animal or any impure creature and eats flesh from modernized sacrifices of well-being, that person shall be cut off from kin. Okay. So we've we've talked about offerings in general. We've talked about sacrifices in general. We've talked about the point. We've talked about the verb lehakriv, to bring close, to cause to come close. Because that's, for us, the understanding of sacred intimacy is achieved through bringing something, sacrificing something. Um, Rabbi Gael Shai, in her teaching for this week, has a beautiful um, piece about the fact that it's it's always true that what we sacrifice for, we come closer to. So whatever it is we're directing, our sacrifice of time, attention, resources, talent, mental energy, whatever we're sacrificing those, we're always sacrificing those, is her point. Um, The question is, to what? Because whatever we sacrifice, on on whatever altar we offer those, that's what we come closest to. And that unless that is a spiritual thing, a, a thing associated with godliness or holiness, it will eat us alive. Because there's, there's intrinsically nothing sustaining about chasing, let's say, money. 
right? Doesn't mean you won't achieve it, but if you sacrifice everything towards that end, what do you come close to? Not something that is fulfilling, not something that makes us better, not something, right? Not something that is life sustaining. It just kind of grows into this possibly megalomania, you know, right? It, that's what we come closer to. And so I love her reinterpretation of that verb, lehakriv and korban, the idea that sacrifice, think about your children and grandchildren or your four-legged children, right? How much we sacrifice, my, my daughter says to me, you know, mommy, I understand why I love you so much. What I don't understand is why you love me so much. And I said, well, why? And she said, well, because because you have to like do work for me and you have to feed me and you have to worry about my clothes and, and getting me to the orthodontist. And like, it's a lot of work to have a kid. So why do mommies love their kids? You say mommies love their kids more. That, that doesn't make any sense that mommies love their kids more than, and what I tried to explain to her was exactly this. I just didn't realize it, which is in all of that doing for you, we love you more. So, so I think that's right. That, that it's about when we sacrifice towards something, which we always do. That's what we come closest to, and so it's about choosing which altars we're going to offer our sacrifices of time, energy, focus, priorities, right, concern, um, and so. Okay, so so we talked about. A little bit about that. So within that context, there's different occasions where one would sacrifice in the ancient world. We're most familiar with ones like the chatat, the sin offering, right? Um, we're pretty familiar with, okay, then on holidays there was a certain you know thing you were supposed to do that was just kind of the, um, the part of the ritual of the temple, <laughs> then there's then there's the which which is to your point the the one that we have here Zot Torah Zevach Hashlamim Zevach is sacrifice so this is the Torah meaning the teaching regarding the Zevach Hashlamim the sacrifice the offering of and now we've got this word Shlamim. What is shalem? Shalem. Complete. Full. Whole is shalem. So shlamim. What is that? Completeness. Of everyone. Ah. Thank you, birds. <laughs> Bring an offering of dry erase markers. It works for me. Um, Thanksgiving. <laughs> so shlamim. It's this interesting. It's this interesting offering. I mean, the interesting name for it. And it's and it's not the reason I'm doing this because it's not agreed upon by scholars. What it means, which means it's up to you. So from the root shin lamed mem, for those of you who don't read Hebrew. Right, the, the consonant sh, l, and m. So we've said shal, 
we've said shalem means complete, whole. Someone said full. I like that, even though that word is malay, but I like that. So on what occasion do you offer a shlamim? On what occasion, and for a chatat, a sin offering, you know when you'd offer a sin offering. When everything is great. Aha. Is this the one you call a sacrifice of greeting? So, some people call this the well-being offering. Because you bring it when you have a sense that things are complete, they're whole, they're good. So you bring a sacrifice of well-being. But there's another interpretation of this offering. I'm not saying they're diametrically opposed, but the nuances are different. How do we greet one another in Hebrew? Shalom. So now it's shalom, but once upon a time, you would ask after the shalom of somebody. How's your shalom? You didn't say shalom. That's modern Hebrew. You would say, how's your shalom? Mashlomcha, mashlomech, is, how are you doing, is the modern, the modern expression of that very, very, we're talking biblically ancient way of greeting one another in Hebrew. You don't say hello. I don't even know what that means. I mean, I don't know what Latin, I don't know Latin enough to know what that comes from. Hi. You, you say, how is your shalom, Linda? W- what's the difference there? It's so much more personal. So it is. So it's, how is it more personal? Because you're really inquiring as to the well-being of the person that you're greeting. And you're interested. So you're interested, meaning my greeting is not about me. My greeting is about you. How, if I truly want to greet you, I ask after your shalom, and then what is, what is the implication of that? Is that I'm going to listen to your answer. You expect an answer about, well, huh, there's been an illness in my family, you know, and it's like, do we do that at all anymore? We do not do that anymore. We, hi, how are you? And we're already walking this way. But we don't really expect an answer. And when someone asks, how are you? We don't really think they want one. We say, fine, don't ask. But it's automatic speech. And here's the one that's like really bugging me these days is when you ask somebody, how are you? How many of you get the answer? I'm so busy. It's my new, it's going to be my new diet, right? Is where I'm going to, and I'm going to start calling people out on it. Really? So have you explored? So I'm, but the other one I like um, that someone taught me was um, they don't say, hi, how are you to people? Um, what they say is, hi, what is it you're dreaming about these days? What are you thinking about these days? Yeah, you, yeah, you ask your husband that question, Linda. Um, when we say that, hi, how are you, boys? And, and, and you do that to intimate people. I speak to a friend, or you, or, or people that I really care about. You wouldn't do that to a uh, client or. I do. 
part of my automatic speech pattern is in the grocery store line to the clerk. I say, hi, how are you? And they say, you're standing there. So they say, pretty good. You know, it's been a good day. How are you? I'm like, I'm doing pretty good. Thanks. Right now, maybe that's because I'm from the South. But our automatic speech pattern is to say, how are you to people we are not intimate with? Interesting. Because that's what's really rooted, right? I mean, that's what's really basic is what are our automatic speech patterns and responses. All right, Margo? So what does that tell you about... <laughs> But that tells you something right away about Bob's personality that his automatic speech pattern is clever. It, and it's, right, because he wrote, I love Lucy, come on. Right? It, it, he's a brilliant, right? But it's automatic for Bob and for your Bob, right, to have these quips and be, you know, right, clever that way, even just in regular automatic discourse. I have a friend from Nebraska who always used to read people's name tags. And it was a way of him focusing on them. So he wouldn't just say, how are you? Even, you know, you could be on the line or someone's packing his groceries. How are you, John? And people are floored. I mean, even though they've got name tags. I do the same thing. Right. Thank you, John, when they're bagging your groceries. Thank you, Bob. Right. When you see their name. That's right. When people use it, And sometimes people are really shocked. It's like, how did you know my name? It's like, well. It was a little different when I was a waitress at Seasons Friendly Eating. <laughs> hey, darling. And I'd be like, do you see this? This is a name tag. And on this tag is my name. How long did you last at that time? Not very long. <laughs> I never got any tips. <laughs> Related to what you say when you come from, because this is in this country. Uh-huh. When you come from another country and you go like... I went to Whole Food and I bought something and the guy said, how are you today? I'm like, do I know you? <laughs> like, almost invasive. And then I go to the cashier to pay, oh, hi, how are you doing today? I'm like, do I know you? Right. So, so much of these, so much of this is culturally based. That's the point. That, right? That is exactly the point. Because for what, what for us is friendly, Americans are so friendly and we're also completely obnoxious to other cultures because they're just like, get out of my space. Get out of my face. Right? I don't know you well enough for you to be this involved in my personal space, right? You're asking about my mother. Back up, right? <laughs> Do you know and my, my mother? children? <laughs> what do you care about? <laughs> right. It's, it's culturally bound, and how it is how close you get to Correct. someone. Yeah. It's part Correct. Of nonverbal communication, along with intonation right. pattern, because intonation patterns are really yeah. different from culture to mm-hmm. culture. Yeah. And eye contact, yeah. uh, right. and you know, right. body contact. Do you extend your hand? You know, all those. And <laughs> I work with a lot of uh, African people, uh, not African Americans, African Africans, 
and they are so much more touchy and happy than than Americans. I mean, culturally, and I look at it and I say, whoa, wait a minute. You, yeah, you just oh, shouldn't even bother. Shouldn't go there. Yeah, no, no, and we are like that. We are always touchy. Yeah. So, so all of this is about, and the reason, right, this is so interesting is this is all, all of this conversation just happened about tell me how we say hello to each other. All right, look how much came out. There's a lot of energy around that topic. We have a lot of energy about how we greet each other, how we interact with each other. And we're just talking automatic now. That was nothing about intimacy, right? So just that, just greeting, look how much discussion we had. That is why some scholars want to call this the offering of greeting. You ask after someone's shalom. And now, of course, it's shortened to shalom, right? Um, that we greet each other with, you should, you should know wholeness, essentially, right? You, you're wishing it to them, shalom. You greet them with shalom and you want them to leave with shalom. Ha, 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 Any ideas about to whom we might be offering a greeting in the Shlamim offering, Pam? God. God. So look at all this energy around greeting. And now imagine that this offering is doing that with God. And that the offerer brings something to sit in the presence of God and have lunch, to have dinner. You ate this offering, the priests ate, right? And you kill an animal, that's a lot of food. How long can you keep this food around? Three days. Three days. Mm-hmm. Third day, right? Some of them only two days. It all has to be consumed. That's about 30 people eating. Like a lot, right? So 30 to 40 people eating that animal. So when you bring this offering of, let's just play with the idea that it's greeting, you're, you're bringing an offering that everyone's going to participate in. And you understand when you bring an offering and you're eating it because it's a sanctified act of eating within a certain time, often within a sacred precinct, you're eating that meal with God. God consumes the reach nichoach, the, the, the flavor, the, what's reach? Smell. smell. Thank you. The smell of the, of the fat burning, right? If you've walked by a barbecue, I can go outside and I know three miles away that somebody's got meat on the grill because it is the best smell in the world. They understood that because it's expensive too. That was your, fat was a huge resource. For them, right? It was sustaining. It was important. It was an important part of their nutrition. Um, they didn't eat it frequently, right? They needed it, but not frequently. In a minute, um, so they they would have offered this, and and they would have understood if we go to this as a as an offering of greeting that that God was participating in that meal. Wow. What if we had some way to really experience out of some kind of sense, and this is not because you've sinned, you know, this is not because something's wrong. This, if we, if we don't read it as well-being, which we can, I'm not saying we shouldn't, but let's just not for a minute. Let's read it as greeting. 
wow, like when might we bring an offering of greeting, like with the intent of feeling truly that we just want to greet the divine and have the divine greet us and sit and share together. But I don't see this as an individual bringing to God. I see it more of a community, community, <clears throat> community and so forth. And that way the spirit of the divine comes back and builds the community. So that, of course, is built into their system. But, and yet, an individual is responsible for deciding when that animal goes for sacrifice and the conditions, and that person would have represented the clan. Right, but there's so much food, and, and, and if, if you're supposed to consume it, you've got to have your community there. Correct, correct, which is something else people fail to understand, is it was, an, it was a communal act. Well, I think that is a serious spiritual practice. Because if I sit down and shut up and really settle down and ask from a really deep place, God, talk to me about your shalom. Um, I bet there'd be some answers. So that was the point of all of this. There's something off-putting about the word sacrifice. And the yeah. way you sort of describe this is it's not so much a sacrifice as a gift of your most mm-hmm. precious asset. Yes. It seems to have a more wholesome meaning in that context. Correct. If you go back to Isaac and Jacob, would you use that kind of description? Going back to whom? Abraham being told to sacrifice Isaac? Instead of using the word sacrifice, would you say, God, I'm giving you my most precious asset? Yes, and it went the other way. God says, give to me your most precious asset, right? So, um, and right, so when you point out the word sacrifice, right, in Hebrew it's korban, from the root kuf, resh, vet, which is about coming close, bringing near. So that's exactly what it is by bringing my asset, my precious asset. And in the ancient world, you had flocks, right? So bringing one of your flock was, you know, taking a big sack of money and putting it on the altar, right? Um, And so I bring my most precious asset. I give that over. And by doing that, I come close. I draw near and it works the other way. Like I... I draw near to God, and they understood I draw God nearer to me. In itself, I mean, just the, the mirror image, just the reverse image, is the question of narcissism. I mean, you would never find anything like this among a narcissistic society. That's right. That's right. And so, and yet El Shai's point is people say they're atheists, but in a narcissistic society, she says, you are sacrificing at an altar. It's just at the altar of beauty or youth 
or um, wealth or power or intellect, right? We're, we're always bringing our most precious assets and giving them over to something. What is it? And is it the worship of youth and beauty and thinness and, you know, or is it, or is it a coming near to something else? And, and I, and, and I love her teaching and that's right. So her teaching ends with, um, truly I've turned 50, um, as someone liked to point out. Um, so the, the, the end of the teaching is that it, I'll come back when I remember it. <laughs> One of the most terrifying feelings in the world is to be alone and cut off. And to me, part of what this says, as well as that great line from Psalm 145, that God is near to all who call, to all who call on God in truth. The kol korav. Kol korav, same root. That no, no, that's Koray, the one who called, right. for all who call, call to God. God. That, um, that it's, it's possible, that it is possible to connect, that we can connect. Because if we felt that we couldn't connect, that would really, really be terrifying. Really terrifying. So I, I find this whole thing very, very optimistic in that part of what our tradition tells us is that we, we can connect with the sacred. This is one way to do it. Prayer, we talk about today, is another way to do it. And that is part of the incredible optimism of Judaism. Because part of what the what atheism says is, A, there's nothing to connect with, and B, even if there was, you couldn't connect. And that is terrorizing in another way. Okay. Richard, did you have your hand up? Um, I was, well, um, I was going to, I was wondering if it's reasonable or unreasonable to assume that the first of the three well-being offered wishes for Thanksgiving, because there's, uh, there's also the devoted and the, the free will, mm-hmm. if, if it's more likely to come about sort of like in, in gratitude for a change in material well-being or, or not, because it seems that in addition to the various prescribed things that you would normally bring to a korban, you have to bring all these fancy cakes and desserts and all these sweet things and stuff like that. So it sounds like you have to, you sort of have to go, you have to put on a show. In, I mean, in a way, I mean, you're not really putting on a show. But I mean, it's something that would stretch the resources of most people to be able to do. So is was that, would that be a, a typical reason for, you know, like something good has happened to the clan and now we've got essentially more material means at our disposal and we're going to sort of give back a bit. To yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely one of the main impulses mm-hmm. of something like a, and like you're talking about the Toda right. offering, right? That it, <clears throat> that one of the main, I mean, that's when we tend to feel most close is out of gratitude when we are, when we want to share we, we want to share when we feel like we have a lot. It's harder to share when we're in um, that tight place of lack like and scarcity thinking. Then it's really hard to share. So I think that would be a normal impulse. But then also part of it would be you would also – it would encourage you to recognize – Your gratitude, 100%. Where a lot of that stuff came from because you're giving some of it back. That's the whole point. Always. The first fruits, the first of your cattle, your harvest, 
That's always the point. Do not forget where it comes from. You didn't do it. You planted the seeds, yes, but you didn't grow the wheat. Nature did that, and that is all about God. But that's not what we go to first. What we go to first is we yeah. go to God to ask for something when yeah. we're in trouble. Right. And we forget so often to say thanks. So to your point, the whole thing is about teaching us to notice, to mark, and to make significant donations of assets out of a sense of gratitude. Because that is the root, right, of how to create a society of abundance and equity. When you acknowledge what you have, generally you want other people to have that too. You you want that for other people. And so you you stay in a much more generous place than looking at I have a two million dollar house, but they have a five million dollar house. So I don't have what they have. Then we clamp down and shut down and want to take more from somebody else if we can. For me, the most impressive thing that's been mentioned this morning is your daughter's question. <laughs> I think that's positive genius. Really. Because when you give to your child, it's not out of gratitude. It's out of wanting them to be well. Out of something that's so beautiful and inborn in maternal and paternal people that um, that it really makes the world go round. And uh, that she could ask this it's In other words, I'm done for. Um, and uh, and to your point, um, Sarah, about you know that the beauty of that um, experience that we have as maternal and paternal people, and I don't even want to say as mothers and fathers, right? As just when we're in that place of maternal and paternal wanting them to be well and doing whatever we need to do to make that happen with pleasure. Um, that is, right, so in Hebrew, I just want to remind us, because I think it's just a beautiful and worth saying a million times, right? So this is the experience of rechem is womb, right? So maternal, paternal means the way one regards the issue of one's womb or one's children's wombs, right? Or just, again, animals or whoever it is we're, we're caring for, that, that, that you said is so beautiful, that motivation, um, is what we mean when we say rachamim. Right? That's what we mean when we talk to in the synagogue and pray for God for rachamim, for mercy. We want to... That's what that word means. Compassion is not... I mean, it's not some idea for us. It is the... It's that motivating feeling to be willing to forgive to be willing to teach rather than punish, to be ready to sacrifice our own self-interest for the well-being of that. That's compassion. That's mercy. That's what we mean when we say, av harachamim. And how beautiful that it comes from the root of womb. So, av harachamim. Compassionate, merciful father. Real, and a lot of translations now you see 
mothering father. Because you can't ignore that this is Rechem. You just can't. It like doesn't get clearer than that. Um, and so like bringing together Av, father, with this idea of the issue of one's womb is like this, it's basically parenting source of everything in this universe, right? And, and so that's what we're praying to have the universe regard us with. Exactly that, that that we regard the ones we take care of. Pam? I was uh, just reading that, which I didn't know. In the Talmud, it says that doing just what we're doing right now, uh, which is studying about the sacrifices, that it is as if we had made those sacrifices mm-hmm. ourselves. So with the right kavanah, um, it, and that it was saying that don't, don't ever think it's, it was about the animal it was a, it, that it was about the animal itself. It was really the intention and the connection behind it, which we are we are doing by, right now. Well, the Orthodox service in the morning includes a lot of things that progressives have taken out, which is a whole study every morning of the laws of sacrifice, which progressive Jews have either eliminated or replaced with other things. Because we descend too often into literalism. And we have lost the art of using these texts to draw us into our own, our own spiritual search, our own questions, our own exploration of those answers. And, um, and it's a shame for me, obviously, like, that we've lost the ability to, to do that, to access this. And we've talked about this, David, together, that most people, when they hear you're studying the laws of sacrifices this morning, like, why? Right? Because we've lost the ability to use these texts as a entrance point. And we haven't gotten to the however part. What? We haven't gotten to the however part. In terms of? Where it says, if, however, the sacrifice. <laughs> Do you want to go there? Because <laughs> there's laws about, there's strict, remember we've talked, there's strict stuff about purity and impurity. Do you know what I mean? And so you have to be, you have to, it's two pages. Is there more? No. Two pages. This is a different one. Balancing fire and light should be the first page. Oh, is it is it three pages? Two pages. I'm freaking out, David. I think I accept, except I'm not entirely sure that that just doesn't automatically cut off secularists from the notion that they can give as well, even though they may not believe in God. And to me, the connecting issue of that is the concept of gratitude. I don't need know if you need God to be grateful, but I do know that if you're grateful, you tend to think larger Sure, and I, and I think what Bert's referencing is for people who were religious. These te- texts are written by people who were religious. He, I think what I heard him say is there's built in all of these assurances 
that you can come back. Mm-hmm. You can connect. Right. There's a way in. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. And we're going to take care of ritualizing it so that when you've messed up and feel disconnected and unworthy, there's the sin offering to bring you back and reset everything. The other side of that, I have to admit, I've never seen the Atheist Memorial Hospital. So Go to Russia. Yeah. But they're not real pretty. <laughs> yeah, but they're not real pretty. All right, so let's let's look at this because I I want this is a perfect example of how to take right some of the, this idea, some of these ideas from Leviticus from our study, and it's not just for today; it just happens to be out of this parsha. Um, but going forward, how to metaphorically start to build our vocabulary when we say the fire on the altar. We're going to continue to build our spiritual Jewish vocabulary about what that means. Because otherwise, we're so stuck in, in the literal interpretation that, that it can be really distancing and off-putting. So I've decided we just really need to build our vocabulary as a learning community. So, I, so I'm bringing you some of these kinds of things. All right. So God spoke to Moses saying from our Parsha chapter 6, Command Aaron and his sons thus. This is the ritual of the burnt offering. It shall remain where it is burned upon the altar until morning, while the fire on the altar is kept going on it. And again, three verses later, the fire on the altar shall be kept burning not to go out. And again, the next verse, a perpetual fire shall be kept burning on the altar not to go out. You see something three times in Torah in close proximity. Whoop, 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 right? Neon lights. What book is this from? I should have known. Um, Torah today. Um, And uh, he's a scholar who looks at uh, ancient Near Eastern mythology and how it shows up in Torah. That's his specialty. Um, Yeah. Kara? Does what have to? So that's where some people go. All right, so the above quotes are taken from the New Jewish Publication Society translation. Most of the other English translations of the Bible we consulted offer similar translations, with the exception of the authorized King James Version, which in this case is truer to the Hebrew original in that it distinguishes clearly between the fire burning on the altar, al-hamizbeach, and the fire burning in it. And that is expressed in Hebrew as tukad bo. Or, if you wish, in him, namely the officiating priest. Remember in Hebrew, build me a sanctuary that I may dwell in what? Right? So in, in them is what it says. So this is another place where that in what is masculine singular. It can either mean to keep the fire burning in it, meaning in the altar, or in him, meaning the priest. There's no it or him. It's just part of the, it's the suffix on the word and it's the same whether it's it or him. Does that make sense? All right. So, bo is the word. In, and then you have to figure it out. Do you say in it or in him? All right. It is not enough to have a fire burning on the altar, says the Hasidic interpretation. So now we're getting what the Hasidim do, what the Hasidic tradition, the mystical tradition does with this literal passage from Torah, which is what I want us to do. 
it pointedly it says emphasizing that there must also be a perpetual fire of enthusiasm within us when we truly worship God. So we're going to they're going to purposefully misread because it's there. They can. If you know Hebrew, you can. Um, they're going to misread it purposefully. Don't read, keep a perpetual fire burning in it, meaning the altar, but rather in him, the officiating priest. And who is the priest now when we read these texts? Us. Any of us who are looking to serve God. Those are all the translations that happen in order to treat these texts as spiritually relevant for us. Let's see if it holds up. The inflame, the inflaming, right? What is this fire? The ardor of ecstasy known in Hasidic thought as heat lahavut, says Martin Buber in his book Hasidism and Modern Man, listen to this, is the goblet of grace and the eternal key. Whoa. He's going to go on a little bit to talk about fire and light, those two different energies. The introduction of fire marks the beginnings of civilization. Primitive man worshipped fire. It provided warmth, food, light, tools, and weapons. It enabled uh, ancient man to shape the world around him. Uh, she came to regard fire as an all-powerful god ancient woman, as do some people to this day, except that the fire worshippers of today use a more sophisticated nomenclature, calling it energy or technology. Hmm. We love to think of primitive man as so primitive they worshipped fire. Guess what, people? Right? We just call it a more sophisticated word now, technology. Any sufficiently advanced technology will look like magic to people who haven't been exposed to it. Torah and Jewish tradition also play much with fire. A perpetual fire must burn on the altar, and in many similar instances in the Bible, the importance of fire is stressed. The Bible makes us realize, however, that while God may speak out of fire, fire is not God. What fire, while fire shapes things, it does not create them. God wants us to use fire and technology. Yes, not to be dominated and subordinated by them. <laughs> right? So let's look at the alternative. Not fire, but the world comes into being according to the biblical story with God solemnly pronouncing, let there be light. This cannot be the light of the sun because the sun Hasn't been created yet in the story. This must be another light. So what is that? The first act of creation, this first act of creation, the creation of light, includes most likely also the creation of all sources of energy. The creation of fire as such is not mentioned explicitly in the story. Rabbinic tradition, though, of course, is going to fill in the missing gap. What is the rabbinic tradition around where fire comes from? Right, Very different from the Greek interpretation. Go over to page 113. Uh, for us, God gives fire to Adam and Eve out of rachamim. They're kicked out of the garden and they know nighttime and unsafety for the first time. 
And God, out of rachamim, gives them the gift of fire to take care of them because God feels for them the way we just talked about earlier. Go to 113, second paragraph. This story stands in direct contrast to Greek mythology, which represents Prometheus as stealing fire from the jealous gods and secretly giving it to humans, right? And this, this earns him a not-so-pleasant, <laughs> eternal, right, existence. So just that those differences between how we treat the fire, how that comes to be in our hands, and how other ancient cultures have understood it is big, right? That it's a gift from a loving parental energy versus we steal it and the gods are jealous and right and it's and it's complicated. Okay, so go to one fourteen. Second paragraph on one fourteen. Both light and fire are gifts of God. And we need both of them. The right balance between the light of grace, chesed, and the fire of power, gevura, between the fire of creativity and the light of awareness that we are ourselves created and kept alive by God is the secret of the good life in the eyes of the Torah. The positive precepts, all the do's, were likened to light. The negative, all the don'ts, to fire. Both together make one complete Torah. Fire and its more modern transfiguration technology are there to serve humanity, not to enslave it. Misuse of fire is likely to destroy the world and bring back chaos and tohu. The right use of fire, which is perpetually kept in the sanctuary, can bring blessing, warmth, and lights. Yes? So we're going to build our spiritual vocabulary when we talk about... So we're going to add two terms. We've, we've discussed a little bit about rachamim, but we're going to leave today with the understanding of two spiritual terms that get transposed onto earlier words. So we have light, right? And we have fire. So we have ash, right? And we have what? Or. Right? Okay. So both are energy. We, we know that. Both are energy. So, but the mystical tradition associates different emanate, we've heard about the spherot, the ten emanations of God. The mystical tradition associates chesed, grace, right, with light. This is grace, which is chesed, and this is power, which is gavura. And this is, I can't, I can't remember how to print a gimel. Oh, right. My printing is terrible. I apologize. I'm used to writing script. All right. So, so power, gavura, 
grace, chesed, these are critical in Jewish mystical teaching, in Jewish spiritual teaching. This is the critical one of the critical axes. If you look at the Sfirot and how they're mapped out, there are different axes. One axis is grace, chesed, and gevura, strength or power. That is a constant push-pull, a constant back and forth. And if one were to go away, the world would collapse. If either one of these went away. We need to activate spiritually both chesed, grace, and gevura, power. Chesed is also called loving kindness. A terrible translation. But, um, right, so... This kind of loving energy of giving, forgiving, right? Um, and this balancing one of boundaries and strength and resistance in some, to some things and in some ways. And they're both needed. We both need to give in and be, you know, ready to give chesed. And we have to be ready to exercise gavura when needed to march in Selma. We've, we've got to have both. Which? So, resilience suggests there's been a fall and a coming back. This suggests a, a movement. It might mean I go way too far over here, right, and get really hurt or beat up, and then I gotta come way back over here before I can find center. So, yes, in that sense, we can go too far, and we need resiliency, you know, the, then Gavura is about having the strength to, to come back and hold the center. Right? So Aish, fire, that energy, passion, you know, call it whatever you want to, and or, light, the, and the balance of those aspects. These are some of the ways our tradition keeps these texts informative and keeps the discussion Alive and relevant and rooted in Torah without reducing it to literalism. Could you also look at those two um, points as Gura um, meaning power, like it's more physical, and light, like to see the light, so it's more understanding, so it's the body and the mind to make mm. us balanced? I don't see why not. <laughs> um, so, but remember, another sphira is Bina, understanding, and Da'at. Knowledge. So there are those he wrote as well. This is just one axis. These are two out of ten. There are other aspects as well. I heard these two explained um, by Rabbi Mordecai Finley. He he uh, was saying that it's like a parent. You could be too lenient out of love, and that's not good. Or you could be too much of a disciplinarian without the hesed, and that's not good either. So it's balancing those two. Yeah. And figuring out how to how to have each always be expressive of holiness and godliness. Because what happens if this is not coming out of that place? What happens? It's abusive. We're tyrants. Well, and we if don't. we come too much, if we're too much over in this one, that's victim. I'm a victim. I'm what you know. What, so it it always has. 
The teaching is that that's our spiritual work, is to make sure both are coming out of and our decisions around them and our activating of them in the world should always be to serve the wholeness, the the shalem status of the world. But you don't, we're not supposed to land in one place on this axis, which is part of what I find interesting. And that is that it is a constant balance and that sometimes we're, on one end and sometimes we're on the other end and that uh, if you eliminate one end that you end up with a horrible chaos. But that, that, that our lives, it's like Yetzir HaTov and Yetzir HaRa. You need you both. You about it, mystic, 100%. You need both and you can put, you put both to work. You are, we are a both and tradition, right? Sometimes I find that that some traditions are way hanging out over here, but doing this, right? They're all about grace and suffering and, you know, humility as they turn around and oppress and murder people who don't agree with them, right? So it's this kind of, we're, we're a people that says, nuh-uh, nuh-uh. You got you to gotta find your way between these all the time when you need to stand up for what's right, when you need to be powerful and strong and defending the weak, and uh, you need to do that. And when you need to be forgiving of uh, election results, you know, or whatever. So, Margo? Uh, when I was married for the second time, we asked uh, Martin, the second husband's nephew, to make us a case for Cuba, and he made us for And the main thing was Hesed. And you know what? I never understood it as clearly as I just understood it now. Excellent. And in this perspective, um, these two beings coming together. And he had asked us things that were symbolic to us in our past and little niches for them in this And this is often transposed onto relationship. Right, so a lot of it is about really about relationship, about I need to be conscious of gavura and chesed as I interact with people. It, definitely, it's expressive of relationships. I was thinking that fire is technology, and there's an overemphasis on social media, and we've lost the connection with relationships because they have some social So not use, this is, thank you, that's exa- a perfect illustration of when I said it needs to, all of it needs to come out of wanting to create holiness and wholeness, because what's happened is, like it says here, is this is, it's meant to serve, and what happens is we are now slaves to it. It's gone the other way, because if we don't, if we don't relate to it out of wanting it to be about holiness and wholeness, then, then it's flipped in a really scary way, which is we are now subservient. Some of us can't even put it down when we want to because our brains now are looking for that hit all the time of who is it? What do they say? Do I get another like? Do they like the video? Who else likes the video? Right? You know, it's like, really? And it just, we, it's very hard and we've become, in that sense, enslaved and um, driven without any conscious control over is it too much? Is it enough? 
you know, the, a time that I'm stepping away from. This week, uh, right now, Daniel Hartman just published an essay which is entitled The Jewish People Have Spoken. Now it's time to speak to the Jewish I read it. <laughs> I read it. Indeed. Um, Donnie L. Hartman, you can Google The People Have Spoken. It's a very thoughtful, very thoughtful piece on the Israeli elections. I'd like to speak in defense of technology for a moment. Bivakasha. <laughs> Someone who, no, I mean a lot. When, when the telephone arrived, there were a lot of people who said, well, people are not talking face-to-face anymore. They're talking on a telephone. And in, in fact, it's not so much the technology that's the problem as how we use it. There is, uh, there, the same thing is true with social media. I mean, one can argue against social media, and yet on the other hand, particularly the younger generation, are using it for a different kind of connection. It's not the kind of connection that we made. I remember when I was a kid, you know, we'd stay on the phone for hours and hours and hours, and parents would never understand that because it wasn't face-to-face. It was a different kind of thing. So I think it, it's not so much the structure, but what we put into it. How, so, how, how we deal with it and how we use it, and for better or for worse, they're here, as well as things that we haven't even heard about so let, that will come later. Let me be clear that I did not intend at all to bash technology. It's about, because I don't want to bash Aish. I never want to bash Aish. There's nothing wrong with Aish. The problem's in us. When we don't strengthen our muscles of choice, about how much I want to connect and how via technology, that's when it's out of balance. That's when it's gotten to where it's not serving us, we're ruled by it. And that's all. The spiritual teachings in every every tradition, in every wisdom tradition, is about consciously making choices about our behavior with the purpose being to have our behavior increase certain things in the world not others. And, and that should be God-focused. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.